Hello Watch Enthusiasts and welcome to Watch Chronicler Unscripted, the podcast available on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes and of course as a video on YouTube too. And in today's episode I'd like to speak about Breitling, a brand which most people are familiar with if they enjoy luxury watches or if they're interested in luxury watches, but it's a brand which has also jumped around in terms of appeal over the last few years. In the mid-20th century they were primarily a technical watch brand with a lot of aviation timepieces and real tools it must be said. Even so, over the subsequent few decades, the image of the brand changed radically to perhaps the peak in the 1990s of masculine aviation imagery behind the advertising of the brand and a general design which was certainly distinctive, it must be said, but one which included very large, very bold, very highly polished watches with limited technical appeal if you put them next to the models from the likes of Rolex or Omega, which had a much more tool-esque appeal, let's say. They were models which clearly had a root or a base in a technical application where you really had to rely on the watch, whereas Breitling's tended to be overly stylistic, in my opinion. But over the last decade, Breitling has had something of a revival. This has been a period during which the brand has developed its own in-house movement for reasons which I must say are a bit different to those, I think, from other brands, and I'll come onto that a bit later. But also stylistically, the brand has seen a radical change and also a level of self-awareness which I don't think was present before in terms of understanding not only the general market the brand has to appeal to, but also understanding the heritage of the brand and the fact that ultimately a market needs to be cultivated rather than simply being a target for the brand to aim for. And then of course there's been a fairly radical change of direction within the brand with the introduction of George Kern as CEO, the former CEO of IWC, the former main adversary you could say for Breitling, but a brand with a very different approach to design, I'd say, and also to brand identity. And the background of this podcast is an unexpected one, because out of the blue I had a conversation with Sylvain Bernouron, the creative director of Breitling, a few months ago, and it served to be a very interesting insight into the way Breitling is moving over the next few years, let's say, and how the range is being reformed. And I'm a journalist, so I'm going to remain pretty critical. And I wasn't necessarily planning to make any content off the back of that conversation, but it's become increasingly clear that Breitling has had a very interesting plan for the next few years, and every few months we see a new release. So I think it will be interesting to look at why this brand has been successful in its reform and its development towards the future, but also look at how Breitling does need to be a bit careful, in my opinion, of the direction they choose and how they position themselves on the market. Now, as a child, when I first started to come across Breitling, whilst looking at watches in windows or perhaps seeing one on the wrist of someone I came across, I tended to find Breitling very different to the luxury watches I'd see from, let's say, Omega or Longines. I saw Breitling as being very large, very brash, and lacking some of the elegance which I tended to find appealing in watches. That being said, at the time I regarded Rolex as wildly pretentious, so I think it's worth taking what I say with a pinch of salt in this regard. But even so, my opinions about certain ranges from the brand remain pretty much unchanged, like the Emergency and the Avenger, which seem woefully out of place. They're far too large to be versatile or practical for the average user. They have allusions to military forces or technical applications, which to be honest seem pretty cheap and rather silly when being sold to grown adults who, to be quite honest, I doubt are swayed that considerably by these somewhat far-fetched images which are alluded to by the advertising concerned, and technically speaking a lot of these watches had rather unremarkable movements for the price they were being offered for, which I appreciate was clearly technically driven, but also had an obvious incentive of raising prices, but still it would have been nice to see Breitling latch onto that. 
and it's only been more recently that that has really been the case. In many ways, you could trace Breitling's resurgence back to 2009, when they first released their in-house B01 movement. And looking back at Breitling's history, Breitling wasn't traditionally a movement maker in the same way as Omega or Rolex, and those were brands which tended to focus on producing three-hand movements too. They tended to look elsewhere for their chronograph movements, and clearly in the case of Breitling, most of their most popular watches were chronograph watches. And chronograph movements were traditionally developed by a third party, even by brands which produced their own in-house three-hand movements. But Breitling didn't tend to have either. And so Breitling in the past looked to Veljou or Venus for their chronograph movements in, for instance, the Navitimer, whilst Rolex looked to Veljou exclusively, as well as Zenith later on, and Omega always had Lamania behind it. But back in the 2000s, it seems fairly clear that Breitling needed to have a movement which was more versatile than the ETA-based movements which they had been using. Certainly, they need specifications to be able to counter the increasing number of more interesting and more advanced movements from competition, although it must be said that a lot of these hadn't come out yet, so perhaps Breitling needed a movement which would be able to outdo brands generally seen as more prestigious than itself. And it seems that the development of this movement was not hurried particularly, and I think that seems to be a reasonable approach given the fact that it was going to be the backbone of the brand, because development began in 2004, testing began in 2006, and the release came in 2009. But the specifications were very impressive from the start. The movement offered a 70-hour power reserve with the same 4Hz beat rate as was seen from Veljour ETA movements, 47 joules, although that was a consequence of the next feature of these movements, which was a modular design, which gave ample opportunity to add features, like later on the split-second chronograph, which has been a very impressive halo model for top-of-the-line Navitimers. But it was also a movement which could easily be adapted to by a previous Veljou 7750 user. It had the same 30mm diameter, so case sizing would be fairly comparable, and it was also automatic in the same way as that previous chronograph movement was. So you could have these two movements operating within the Breitling range at different prices to cater to different customers. Of course, you could argue that there were reasons why this perhaps wasn't the best idea, because pricing for the Veljou-powered movement watches within the Breitling range still remained fairly high, and so one does have to wonder sometimes whether you're better off spending the additional money and saving up for the in-house movement within the Breitling range, when actually the difference in price between an in-house and a third-party movement Breitling isn't particularly large at this stage. Importantly, this approach was very different to the somewhat one-trick wonder movement approach which Tag Heuer's had to their general application chronograph movements, which haven't seen the same breadth as Breitling's work in the same field. And then, of course, Breitling has been very careful with the use of this movement. Notably, it's essentially exchanged this movement for Tudor's three-hand movements, so that Breitling can provide Tudor with an interesting high-level column wheel chronograph in exchange for Tudor's very high-tech long power reserve and seemingly very reliable movements to put into three-hand, more simple Breitling watches, and also in a much higher level of decoration than Tudor would offer. But of course, there's much more to a brand than just the movements used, and that's why I think the first stylistic change, let's say, to the Breitling range, which I think has been extremely important, has been attention given to the standard basic sports watches which the brand is famous for, models like the Super Ocean and the Chronomat, the two examples I'd like to use. Historically speaking, the sports watch has always been central to the Breitling brand. Certainly from the very start of the 20th century, they were known for producing chronographs, and I believe produced the first chronograph with central seconds, as well as a 30-minute counter. 
They also produced bombing timers during the Second World War, and the Navi timer as a successor to the original chronomat brought slide rule bezels to the fore of the aviation chronograph market. In fact, even the image produced in the late 20th century of this tough technical brand has been rooted in the sports watch. But in recent years, the Super Ocean, the core dive watch of the brand, has had a less than professional bezel, relatively low dial legibility, overly lustrous polished cases have been seen, and overly complicated dials have also appeared since the 1990s. Of course, there have been models with very high levels of water resistance, but by the same token, there have been poor testimonials as to the actual integrity of these watches by comparison to models from Omega and Rolex. But over the last few years, the Super Ocean has been reformed, and also has been reformed with a level of pragmatic thought which is extremely charming in a watch brand, because we see a lot of brands offering higher and higher specifications without actually thinking about what would be best for the customer. This is a watch with a recognisable boxy case, but with a simple elegance instead of a brashness because of a brushed finish with some polished elements rather than having a fully lustrous appearance. Similarly, the cases, whilst still large in terms of size options, tend to wear smaller than they previously did and have been conceived with some serious care. The bezels are also properly graduated for diving with the necessary luminous application for most divers to be comfortable with them. And the same thing has been carried over to the dials, which remain extremely bright in terms of colour but also have fully luminous applications, but retain the classical style of the collection, which is distinct, it must be said, from other popular dive watches on the market. But the interesting part of these watches is that, whilst priced to compete with a Tudor Black Bay, and so at the very entry level of the Breitling brand, they use ETA2824s at base. Of course, these watches don't have the specifications offered by any of the watches in the Breitling range with those Tudor movements, so they don't have the long 70-hour power reserve, or indeed the refinement which those movements have, but for a customer who wants a Super Ocean and is prepared to pay for it, it's a reasonable movement to give serviceability and practicality for years to come, so I can understand the choice being very reasonable in the case of this watch. Then of course they have different sizes, going from 36mm with a 200m water resistance, 42mm with a 500m water resistance, 44mm with a 1000m water resistance, and of course a range-topping 48mm model, with a reduced 300 meter water resistance, but with a locking bezel in a similar sort of twist, a Breitling twist, let's say, on something like an Omega Ploprof, but with a much more reasonable size and appearance. The result of this is a much easier entry into the Breitling brand for many customers who want a simple dive watch. And it seems that Breitling has used the same tactic with the new Chronomat, because the Chronomat has been reasonably identified by Breitling as the all-purpose chronograph, and something a bit more evolved, let's say, by comparison to the purely aviation-based chronograph it was during its original period before the introduction of the Navitimer. But again, in recent years, this has been a model with a very difficult bezel to read, with a range of very complex numerals on it, as well as a case design which was overly shiny, and dials which were needlessly complicated, with endless different fonts used, and numerals which seemed out of place on a sports watch like Roman numerals, and the whole result was generally pretty messy. But they've discarded that case and gone for something much more elegant in a finer line with a brushed and polished surface, which returns back to the proportions, roughly the proportions, let's say, of the original 1984 model, which made the range popular in the first place. They've also found a very reasonable place to price the watch. They've priced it at around £6,500 as a basic entry-level point, where you're able to get the watch in a very appealing steel form, 
which sits somewhere between the less complex, let's say, manually wound Speedmaster Professional from Omega, but still below the price of their automatic Speedmasters with their very clever in-house movements, giving this B01 Brightling with the long power reserve, the accurate and very high-tech movement, a very, very good position to offer more than those watches. And of course, as of a few days ago, it's been available in two versions to appeal to different customers, a 42mm version which stylistically is closest to the original 1984 model, with simple pushes which don't have to be unscrewed anymore, an elegant, all-purpose feel, but still with a 200m order resistance, despite the 1984-style crown, which is very appealing. And then on top of that, for a bit more money, you can get the 44mm model, which doesn't insult the owners of the smaller model by having a higher water resistance, it retains the same 200 meters, but just gives slightly more size and boldness to a different customer, not necessarily one who's prepared to pay more. So it's larger, it has screwed pushers, it has a more modern, more usable crown, let's say, more sober colors, and of course the use of ceramic on the bezel and a UTC bracelet, an interesting addition back from the 1980s when Breitling had a quartz movement inside the bracelet to give you a second time zone. An interesting and not necessarily useful for everyone, but certainly exciting addition. Nevertheless, whilst I give Breitling a lot of praise for this particular treatment of their watches, I do see that the fact that their range is becoming more and more complex, and in the case of a lot of brands, the more complicated the range, the more complicated the job of the customer in choosing a model. And that can be a problem, although I suppose Breitling has a particular brand image which doesn't make this range of different pieces appear out of place, where for example Rolex would if they suddenly released 15 different variations of the Submariner in steel, which would cause untold chaos in terms of people actually choosing the right one, given how much people look over their shoulder at what other people are buying at any given time, particularly in the market in which we currently live, where there's a very strong herd mentality, let's say. To a collector, perhaps the most interesting part of Breitling for quite some time has been their heritage or history-inspired range, and these are models which complement the fairly extensive array of middle-of-the-road modern pieces like, for instance, the Breitling Premier, which don't necessarily appeal to a collector in the same way as they might appeal to a casual buyer. Over the last few years, the most popular example has been the Super Ocean Heritage, which has generally been seen as a Tudor Black Bay alternative, and in its previous iteration it had an ETA movement, virtually no low-light legibility, and a higher price than the Tudor, and without the associations which Tudor has with the Rolex brand, you can see why it wasn't necessarily as popular as that watch. But now it seems like Breitling has taken a new approach, because they've split their historical pieces between more modern pieces inspired by the past and full-on historical remakes, giving them a lot of power over both the casually interested buyer, or the curious buyer, and the seasoned collector who wants an alternative to their vintage watch, but one which they can wear every day without too much worry. On the side of pure, perfect heritage remakes, Breitling has perhaps understood that complexity isn't necessary to make a really interesting watch. With these pieces, they've been able to take fairly simple historical designs, certainly ones they didn't have to re-engineer. They simply recreated these past pieces, with some allowances, it must be said, for a new movement. But they've been able to give a simple brushed case back, a rudimentary appearance, let's say, and even a reduced feature set, by instead focusing their efforts on absolute quality, and it really shows. They also haven't made these models unreasonably expensive, despite the fact that they are generally limited editions and won't be seen after a certain period of time. They've been extremely good anniversary models. To present a vintage counterpart, or a certain lineage, let's say, to the modern watches which they're offering in a more general way. And the movement chosen has also been a clever one, because generally these watches were going to be desired by people who were either collectors 
or who appreciated the design and, importantly, the thinness of those vintage references. And so they took the Breitling B09 as the perfect movement, essentially a manual version of the B01, with all the same advantages, but without the thickness of automatic winding, and with the additional user involvement of winding the watch up every three days. And the two headline models which really have demonstrated just what a good job Breitling can do have been the Navitimer Reference 806 1959 edition and the AVI Reference 765 1953 edition. These were both important historical references for the brand, with the Navitimer being a remake of one of the early Navitimer models, notably one of the earliest 806s because you had an all-black dial and a somewhat more traditional dial arrangement, but still a beautiful appearance which doesn't focus on giving you vintage aged Luminova, but just a replica which you can wear every day of that original watch. And then the AVI is a model which a lot of people revere as one of the most elegant and also one of the most historically important rotating bezel chronographs in the aviation field, notably predating quite a lot of the models which we so admire in this particular segment. This is also an important watch to show the background of the Aviator 8 collection, which is a fairly new and fairly popular aviation chronograph, which has a similar appearance to that 1953 watch. It is possible, though, that the Heritage-inspired models have been even more important. These are models like the Super Ocean Heritage, which is now split into two different collections. There's the modern version, which was released a few years ago, with revised hands, a revised design, a ceramic bezel, and all the modern features you would expect, notably a 200 meter water resistance, but also with a movement which is derived from that used by Tudor in the Black Bay. And so the result is a very technically impressive, perfect everyday watch for someone who wants something historical, but still with all the modern practicality you might expect. And then the contrast to that is the more recent 1957 edition, which uses an ETA 2892 instead of the high-tech movement to give you the proportions of the original, with a very slim case, a lower 100 meter water resistance, and a very different dial arrangement, which is much more eccentric, but also much more interesting to a collector. And with these two models, which, which actually don't see that much change in price between the ETA and Manufacture models, you see a range which complements different customers with very different models, but all with the same sort of roots. And then finally, you have to look at the brand new Premier Heritage Collection, a range which takes the somewhat piecemeal, in my opinion, Premier Collection of modern, contemporary, but somewhat simple watches, and provides charm, but without actually giving anything too old-fashioned. These are watches with a more elegant case design, a refined dial with a few quaint touches like the syringe hands, but still with bright colours like the very rich pistachio green you can now get on the steel version of this chronograph. It's also a watch sized at 40mm, so a long way away from vintage watch sizing, but still with a lot of appeal with the same B09 movement which is manually wound, creating a nice balance of different functions and features to give someone a perfect everyday watch, but helping Breitling, most importantly, to share different parts of its collection with the buying public, rather than simply the most popular models. Of course, this particular new range is reinforced somewhat by the addition of the Duograph and Datora models. And at 42mm, the Duograph is an interesting piece because it uses a variant of Breitling's B03 in manual form with two new patents to offer a very simple but practical rattrapant or split second system for a price around £7,700, which really is pretty much unchallenged on the market. Sure, you could probably find a Habring for that sort of price, but those are very different and far smaller scale products of a far less well-known brand. So the fact that Breitling are able to offer you an everyday watch with everyday practicality with that complication for that price is frankly remarkable.
All of these watches allow the Premier collection to gain historical credibility, and I suppose sell more across the entire range, not just within these vintage-inspired versions. Still, there are dangers, of course, like watch size and thickness. There's been a lot of discussion about these newer models being overly thick, particularly in in-house form, and particularly in manual form. But then one has to consider the fact that not only does Breitling have to deal with a movement which is modular and which has to undergo quite a lot of work to add all of the additional complications, but also I suppose they're producing a watch which has to appeal to a wide range of customers, and particularly customers with a very particular sizing attitude to Breitling. So I think altogether they've done a very good job. But what can we conclude from this analysis of Breitling's recent years? Well, certainly the brand is looking at new directions, but in terms of competition, I think it's more difficult than ever to see where Breitling fits in, because whilst they use Tudor's movement, I think it would be unkind to say that Breitling competes with Tudor. I think they're on a higher level, I think that they deserve more respect than Tudor, certainly in terms of the order of things within the watch industry. Even so, I'm not convinced that someone who's in an Omega boutique would necessarily look at any of the Breitlings and say that they wanted one, because I think they're too different in terms of watches, and certainly I think Rolex, at this point in terms of general public interest, is a different animal entirely. If someone wants to buy a Rolex, they want the brand. They don't necessarily want to look at watches which may be more interesting under certain circumstances and to certain people, because the intent is very different. Still, I think that Breitling has done a pretty staggering job of detaching itself from previous appeal, and given the general public opinion towards the heritage or vintage-inspired versions of the Premier, there was a level of confusion as to how Breitling had released such an elegant watch, despite its historical inclinations. But what do you think of Breitling in recent years? Do you think they've done a very good job of changing the brand image, or are you still held to the very 90s image of the brand? Let me know in the comments section below if you're watching this as a video on YouTube, and if you're listening to this as a podcast, please remember to follow us on whichever podcast player you enjoy using to always catch the latest and to keep these podcasts coming. So thank you very much for watching and for listening. This is Armon from watchchronicle.com, out.